But something was missing last week that we talked about, and it was God's very presence. And while those walls and, and the Torah, the, which is their, their, um, the five books of the Bible and the, the start of their, their literature that we now look at as part of our Old Testament, while they reconnected with it and built the walls of Jerusalem, God's presence was needed. Like that verse said, unless the Lord builds the house and watches over the walls, watches over the city, we're laboring in vain. And so we looked at that, that how we need God's presence. And here's one thing I'm so glad about. I'm glad that we don't actually have to rebuild our church, literally build the walls of this building. We don't have to do that. We don't have to rebuild Cornwall and put it back together. A number of years ago, I had the uh, honor of going down and serving in New Orleans after the Katrina hurricane had gone in through the area there. And a number of people from uh, the church I was in at the time, we drove down to New Orleans and we partnered with the church down there. And we basically went into people's homes and we just helped them gut their home, take out all the, the drywall or walls stuff that bring it down to the raw studs so they could spray it again and get it all clean so they could rebuild again. Um, and we were, we were all masked up. It felt very similar to what we do now with all of our masks on. We had all this PPE on to make sure while we were going in there, there's no molds and gross things that, um, that could get into our lungs or anything like that. But uh, doing that and looking at just the the expanse of what was needed to rebuild parts of, of New Orleans in the lower quarter, it was, it was, um, it would almost be demoralizing because there was so many. We would go in and we would work all day long and barely touch what would be a small wartime house here in Canada. We'd barely make a dent on taking out everything there. And then you'd drive through neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood of all these homes that were still yet to be even looked at. that Nobody had even gone through them to see what the damage was like. And it's been that long since where they're still rebuilding. And I can't imagine having to do that. I was, I was talking with some people the other day about the, uh, the dam, the hydroelectric dam, and how the water levels is high there. And if that dam were to go, how so much of lower of the downtown Cornwall area would be, would be flooded. I can't even imagine what it would look like to have to recover from circumstances like that. And yet, that's what they did in that time. Now, some of you guys may be going like, well, I've never had to do anything like that. never had to recover anything. But here's something you probably have had to do at some point. Put together Ikea furniture. Huh? You have, haven't you? Or something like Ikea furniture, where it all came in a flat little box, and you opened up, and there was a, there was a little shrink wrap thing full of all the nuts and bolts that you're supposed to use. Now, like, like we talked about as far as Israel last week, about how they had, they had the walls, they had the, the Torah, they had the temple rebuilt, but something was missing. Have you ever tried to build Ikea furniture, and then you realize there's a nut or a bolt or a little wooden cog that's missing, and you, you can't do anything, and you're frustrated because Ikea is far away or closed, and you can't get that part you need to finish what you were building. It can be, it can be pretty frustrating to get into that situation when something is missing, right? You know what can be just as soul-crushing? 
when you're doing Ikea building is when you get to a certain place and you're like, why is this not fitting properly? How come it doesn't work right? And then you realize you put a piece in wrong. You put it in backwards. You flipped it upside down. The holes that were supposed to be for one, the next piece to go on, they're on the other side doing nothing. And you're looking at it and you're like, that was like four steps ago. And you're like, in order to keep going, I have to reverse all those steps in order to move that piece around. And now I know because of the chuckles that you're doing here that you've, you've put together IKEA furniture and you realize how fragile IKEA furniture is, don't you? It doesn't just like, you know, it's not like, oh yeah, you can just crank on it hard and put it all together. You're like sometimes very gently putting in because you know if you, you screw that screw one extra turn, all that you know, sawdust that they've glued together is just going to pop and un, unhold. And it's, you're, you know, then you're going to be looking at this piece of furniture that's all wobbly because you just, you wanted to make sure it was good and tight and you went too far. And now you, you did that. You know you did that. And you're like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I didn't quite go far enough. It'll be fine. But now you have to undo that screw. You know, you have to undo it and you're like, oh, this is going to totally break it. I thought I had it just, you know, just on the edge of being too tight, but not too tight. And now you have to go back and undo that piece and restart. It can be, it can be demoralizing, can't it? I know you felt that. You're probably just all in shock right now, and you're like, I don't want to relive those moments. I don't want to relive. I know, I know some of you did that because you were actually at my house when we were moving in, building one of those pieces for my son and his, his wardrobe in his room. And, you know, a couple of guys in a room with lo- with, uh, without ventilation and, you know, get, getting all frustrated and hot and sweaty, it, can, it cannot be a good thing. But uh, it can be challenging when you do that. Because sometimes it's not about missing something. You have all the right pieces. You have everything you need, except you put them in the wrong position. You get them in the wrong order. Now, that's something that Israel did as well. Not only do we see an example of them missing the presence of God, but when they had everything all together, that they put things in the wrong order. As a refresher, this is what was going on at the time. Israel had been enslaved by uh, Babylon. They'd been in captivity there for 50 years. And God was using three different leaders within the Jewish community, uh, giving them different assignments to help restore Israel and bring Israel back to its place. God had, had promised there would always be a remnant in Israel that were true and faithful to him. And so these three leaders were rebuilding the temple, the walls, and restoring Torah to the community. Zerubbabel, I'll say that name, try that one, say that with me, Zerubbabel. I know, it sounds, it's a fun name to say, isn't it? Now, Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem. Another gentleman, Ezra, was rebuilding people's understanding of the Torah and how to follow Torah. And Nehemiah was rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. Because it's one thing to have a beautiful temple and have people living in a city, but when it was unprotected and the walls weren't there to keep everybody safe, it would be kind of useless. It would just get uh, marauded and, and raided again. Now, this is what we see in Nehemiah 8. We see Ezra reading Torah to the people. And as a result of reading Torah, um, and as a side note to you, 
Torah, when we can think of what he's reading, think Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, let's just sit in a big public forum and have somebody read that out to thousands of people sitting there listening. And that's what we do for the day. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Some of you would be like, that sounds awesome. Other people will be like, but when they get to the names, you know, <laughs> when they get to the numbers of, of each tribe, when they, when they took a census and they counted, and there was 12,000 from the tribe of, and there's 12,000, and it just keeps getting repetitive, you'd be like, they sat there and they listened to that, did they? Wow. And a guy spoke it out over a whole massive con without a PA system. He just yelled it out there for them. That's, that's dedication. That's dedication right there. Anyways, back to our, where we were at here. Now, as a result of reading God's Word, as a result of reading those first five books, which most people would say are not always the most engaging. Some parts are very, very easy to read, and other parts are a little less engaging. But as a result of reading God's Word, the people enter a moment of repentance. Reading those five books, hearing them read, not even them reading them, but hearing it read caused them to want to repent. And we read this in Nehemiah 9, 1 and 2. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. You see, as individuals and as a collective uh, of people, they take three significant steps that we can read there. The first one is they start off fasting. They, with, they withhold themselves from food and other things in order to focus on getting right with God. The second thing they do is they separate themselves from syncretism. Like we talked about last week, they separate, the, separate themselves from looking and acting and living like the world around them. They say, we, need to, we just need to come away and be with our God and focus on our God. And then the third thing is they stood and they confessed. Fasted, separated themselves, and stood and confessed. They confessed both individual sins, their own, and collective sins, the sins of their father and of the community. Now, here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, the idea of collective sin or collective um, repentance. Sometimes we, we don't quite understand or, or take that as seriously maybe as we should because it isn't an either-or type of uh, statement. It isn't a take-it-or-leave-it understanding. It's a both-and heart posture towards others that we need to have where we look at the sins and the transgressions of those that maybe have gone before us and we stand in the gap and say, uh, and repent for those things. That could be towards individuals, to groups of other people. Now, here's the thing. As Canadians, we often, we often have tension that we try to hold, don't we? We have this tension of rights and responsibilities that we have. And we hold it in tension of trying to figure out how to, how to live out and, and take full advantage of our rights while also balancing the need to have responsibility to the larger community. Now, as followers of Jesus, 
we both have those rights and responsibilities too, but we add in another level. We add in righteousness as well. Our tension isn't just the rights and responsibilities we have as citizens of Canada and as citizens of heaven, but it's righteousness as well. How do I hold the tension of being set apart for loving holiness as well as exercising my rights and upholding my responsibility in the community? There's this three-way tension that we hold as followers of Jesus. This tension is something we hold, uh, we each hold, and uh, it's something collectively we hold as the body of Christ. You and I hold it individually. You have the holiness that God has set you apart for, as well as your rights and responsibilities. But then collectively, as God's people, as the body of Christ, as Life Center Cornwall, we too have a collective holiness in being set apart that we need to work through and a tension we need to hold. Now, in verses uh, 4 and 5 of Nehemiah 9, we see something powerful that is, that's happening. It isn't just Ezra or Nehemiah who pray uh, prayers of repentance. It isn't those three. We don't have Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah all getting together and saying, we're going to do this for everybody. We'll just speak on behalf of everybody. All of the Levites, the whole tribe, representing all the people, because the Levitic tribe were to represent all of Israel before, uh, before God, they all stand and repent. They all recount what God has done through the time. And we, we, we arrive at verses 16 and 17 of Nehemiah 9, and it says this, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. And this is recounting how they had gotten into the situation of being in Babylon and uh, in captivity for 50 years. They acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious in mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Isn't it amazing that we serve a God that is that, isn't it? Stiff-necked. It mentions that a couple of times in there. That means prideful, haughty, or even stubborn. The idea of acting presumptuously, where they decided they knew what was better and what they should do. Again, they had everything they needed, but they got things in the wrong order of how to build. And they put their own ideas in front of God. Individual and corporate repentance is defined by confessions, coming to the light when all you want to do is stay hidden in the shadows. I can't imagine them standing there and having to recount the history of how they got to be uh, in, in captivity in Babylon and have to say out loud as leaders and as the whole Levitic tribe, we messed up. We led you astray. It wasn't them because that was generations ago. But they had to stand there and say, we led you in the wrong direction. When all you'd really want to do is 
stay hidden, keep that hidden in the shadows or blame somebody else and say, like, listen, I just got to Jerusalem at the same time as you did. I just, we just rediscovered the Torah at the same time you did. How am I to be held responsible for what happened generations ago? But that's not how confession works. That's not how repentance works. That's not how corporate or collective repentance works. It has to come to light. And it has to be accounted for. John 3, 20 to 21 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. We want to be people who come to the light. People who hunger for God's presence are come to the light people. Churches who hunger for God's presence are come to the light churches. And today, this is, this is what that could look like. As a people, as a person, it could look like this, that we hunger for God's word. That on a personal level, we hunger to know God's word, to read God's word, to understand God's word. That when we mentioned earlier them reading through the first five books of the Bible, we don't look at that and with dread. We look at that and go like, I should probably try that sometime. I should try and read through and see what kind of conviction comes upon me when I take a large chunk of Scripture and I read through its narrative and see the effect it has on somebody. We hunger and thirst to see what God's Word wants to reveal, not just to us, but in us, so that we can let that come to the light. As a people, it could also look like this, that there's a personal holiness that pulls you closer to Jesus. And I say that it's a personal holiness because there could be something that God is calling you to let go of, to leave behind, to move beyond that isn't necessarily a black and white sin issue, but it's a call for you to be closer to God. And it's a call for you to let it go so it cannot distract you anymore. But Jesus can be your sole focus God's presence can be what, what drives you and, and you have a hunger for. And I say that it's a personal holiness because we got to be careful not to judge others who don't have that same call to personal holiness. There's been seasons in my life where God has called me and said, listen, I want you to stop watching entertainment things. I want you to don't go to movies, don't watch TV shows. I need you just to set those aside for a season so you're focused on me. Now, if I were to make a rule for all of us to say, hey, God called me to personal holiness of not watching TV or movies. Now, I want you all to join me in that, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge you all if you don't do that. That wouldn't work very well. If you don't have that same conviction on your heart to be set apart in that way, then don't. If it's not a sin issue, then, then, then it's a personal holiness issue. But longing and having a hunger for the presence of God, it's going to look like Jesus keeps calling you to a different level of personal holiness. And the reason why he does that is to keep poking and prodding at the things that could become stumbling points for you, 
the things that can become easy distractions for you that take you off of God's preferred path for you, that doesn't take you deeper into his presence, but it takes you deeper into syncretism, takes you deeper into looking and acting just like the world around you. And he wants to keep calling you over and saying, no, no, come over here with me and let's hang out and do this together. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Just put that on pause for now because I have this time I want to spend with you and it's going to be awesome. There's a personal hunger for that that we can have. There's also, as it look, on a personal level, there's a humility and a sacrifice where it seems like an honor to be able to serve Jesus. Where we're just humbled by the fact that God calls us. He knows us by name. And he says, I have a... I have a, a job for you to do. I have an assignment I want you to do as a part of my church and a part of my kingdom. And we're like, me? You want me to do that? And there's a humility to it. And I'm like, I'll put down anything. You want to give me a job, God? I'll take it. I'll, I'll do whatever you're asking me to do. I'll, I'll sacrifice whatever's needed. It's a hunger for God's presence. As a church, it could look like this. A church that prioritizes God's word above our opinions. Where collectively we say, what does God's word say, not does, what does prevailing opinion say? What does my commentary on this say versus what does God's word say? We say, let's just stop, let's pray, let's seek God's word for wisdom in how to move forward as a church. It could look like this prioritizing others before ourselves, where we look at how we live and act as the church, and we don't put our own priorities first. We put other priorities first. We look at others and we say, how can I love the rest of the community? What is needed and required of me to make sure the rest of the community here feels love, feels the acceptance of Jesus? What do I need to do in COVID that we, we can clearly understand what that looks like? As far as how do I make sure other people in our community feel safe and know that they're safe? We put others before ourselves. As a church, it could look like this. Patiently waiting for God to move. Because in our own strength, it's not enough. Where we say, God, we need a move. One of the songs we sing uh, on a regular basis at, at Life Center is that the, a move, we need a move. We need God to move. If we want to see lives changed, if we want to see, um, even in the freedom session that we were talking about this afternoon, if we want to see people have that freedom in Christ, it's a move of God that brings that about. It's not anything in our own will or our own strength that will do that. You can't just, just say, you know what, I'm going to be free now. It takes the, the working of God. It takes what Jesus has done on the cross and who he is, the blood of the lamb, to overcome the work of the enemy in our lives, not our own strength. And so collectively, we patiently wait and say, God, we don't want to go anywhere without you. We don't want to make decisions. We don't want to move forward unless we know it is a move of God and is your will. That's what it looks like. That stiff neck posture says, I don't want to be in a church with those people. I don't want to be in a church with people who act like that, who think that. Stiff neck postures looks like this. I've studied this a lot on the internet, and it could look like this. 
If I can't be accommodated exactly how I want, I'm out. If you can't serve me the way I want to be served, then I'm out. A come to the light posture could look like this. Like I said earlier, I can't believe Jesus desires to build his church with me. Or it could look like this. We should look to God's word for direction and wisdom, not the internet. Or it could look like this. While we work, we need to work like it's up to us, but we need to pray like it's up to God because it really is up to God. We make sure we're doing our due diligence, but we pray because we know our work in and of itself isn't enough. We need God. So we pray like it's all up to him. As followers of Jesus, here is who we are in Christ. We're accepted. We're being set apart from the bondage of sin. We are never alone. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have authority in spiritual conflict. And simultaneously, we live with an awareness of these things, that there's this holiness of God, this set-apartness of God, that he is both loving and just. And we also realize the depth of our sin, both in our own lives, our community, and our past. But whenever we look at our lives and we look at our righteousness and we measure it by looking at others, we're in error. Whenever we, we look side to side to see whether or not we're doing good, we're in the wrong spot. When we look at another person, another church, another denomination, we look at another political opinion, a vaccination stance, we're in the wrong when we look side to side to see whether or not our righteousness is good. Whenever our Christian witness is measured by looking exclusively to the good or the bad that we have done, we have erred. So how do we correct this? How do we stop looking from side to side or looking in the past and say, well, you know, we're not like that anymore. We don't, we don't do any cultural appropriation anymore. We've, we, we, we weren't that type of denomination. If we look around and say, that's not us, our righteousness is cleaner than that. How do we stop doing that? How do we not look around us to compare what it looks like to be righteous? We can only do it by looking exclusively to Jesus as our standard. Never lower the bar. We look to Jesus and say, that is what perfection, that is what righteousness, that is what holiness looks like. Not one step better than the person next to me. And you may be thinking, wow, this is a tall order to live up to. How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to be good enough to look at that standard and be okay? But I remember what Nehemiah 9.17 said, but you are a God ready to what? Forgive. You're gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. We look up to God's righteousness and we hold on to it because it's something we could never achieve, attain on our own. Those elements, his mercy, his patience, his love, they're not wishful thinkings 
uh, on the part of the people. That's how God revealed himself. We can see that in Exodus 34. When they were reading the Torah, they would have read in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. Sounds familiar, right? Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bring the consequences of the father, the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. He knows who he is. He knows his righteous standard. He knows what he's called us to be and do. But he is compassionate and gracious, patient, loving, and true. See, in the story of Nehemiah, trusting who God is leads them to this moment of repentance life-giving repentance. It may start with our own guilt, but then it must move to who God is. When God exposes things inside of us that need to be brought to light, that's the first step, but then it must bring us to God, to that light, to who he is, so that he can do something about it. You see, our enemy desires to bring death-producing repentance, not life-producing repentance. And it starts with guilt, but then it stays in the realm of who we are on our own merit, our own strength, our own desire to become better. And we can and we should learn from their story of repentance because they did right. They did right. They heard the message of what they were supposed to be, what their relationship with God was supposed to look like. They repented. They fasted. They prayed. They stood there and said, here's what we did wrong and our fathers have done wrong for generations. And we come and we want to turn from those ways. But then they do something which is not right. And this is where we take that Ikea piece and we put it in wrong and we, we build it wrong. We start to build off of it wrong. In Nehemiah 10 they make a covenant with God. It says this in Nehemiah 10, 28 to 29, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, anybody and everybody apparently, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land of the law uh, of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have acknowledged and uh, who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given to, by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. They enter into it and they say, let there be a curse on us. Let there be this oath between us. And the rest of chapter 10 details the covenant they make before God. And it's all good stuff that they want to try and do. But there's an enormous difference between this and the other covenant that God had established. This one was initiated by the people, not God. They were like, this is what we're going to do for you, God. This is how we are going to reestablish ourselves with you. We are going to do this. They initiated it, not God. Why does this matter? God makes covenants from his essence. And we do that from our desires. He makes this covenant because it's his nature to want to do this. It's just who he is. He can't help but want to make a covenant relationship with us. They were doing it out of a desire and a will to try and be better. The essence, the character of God is unchanging. 
But your desires, my desires, they can change in a moment's notice. One day we can desire to do all these right things, and the next day we just want to sleep in. We just want to do whatever. We want to change our budget so that we can set aside money to do whatever until we see that amazing sale that's only going to come along once in a lifetime or every other day. We, we, we want to do those things. and We say we're going to do this, but then our desires switch to something else. We say we want to be holy and set apart, but then we find ourselves going down bunny trails on the internet and find ourselves in conspiracy theories that are so deep that we don't know where, 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 how to get out of it. We, we say one thing, and then we find ourselves in the desires the next minute, minute somewhere else. Now, here's the thing. When they make this covenant with God, just like last week, last week one thing is noticeably absent from their covenant. God doesn't respond. They don't say, God, here's, they say, God, here's what we're going to do for you. We're going to live this way. We're going to set this up. It's going to be great. We're going to return to our, our old ways. God, watch us just like get the discipline down. And what does God say? Nothing. He doesn't say, finally, thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting for you. Now we can finally move forward. He doesn't say anything. Nothing. Nothing. And again, God doesn't, res- he doesn't respond. It's not because he-, he doesn't love them. He doesn't respond because he actually is loving. It's not because he's uncaring that he doesn't respond. It's that, it's that, that part of God, again, that we say is, is uh, gracious and slow to anger abounding in faithful love. That's the God who is not choosing to respond in that moment. That's the God who's not going, really? Seriously? Are you going to do this? Do I need to teach you another lesson already? Instead of saying that, he is gracious. The people themselves, they want to restore what they had before in their own strength. God doesn't honor their covenant. Why? Because he already had a covenant with them, one that he could never break. And one that he just wanted them to return to, that Mosaic covenant that he had set out. All that was needed was the repentance, confession, and obedience. No new covenant, no new promises, no new, I promise this time I'll do it. Nothing needed other than repent, confess, and obey. That's all that he needed. And he doesn't need another covenant because he, only, he already knew uh, there was a better covenant in mind that he was going to initiate. In Hebrews 8, 7, we see for it, for it, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That first covenant, all it did was point out how we continually can't meet that covenant. And the second covenant with Jesus and what he has done for us allows us to cling to his righteousness. Any covenant we try to come up with and deal with that we think is, is going to be great is actually flawed and inferior to the, the covenant that God creates. Anytime we try to strike a deal with God and say, this is what I can do to make up for, this is what I can do to start living the way you want me to now, it's flawed. All he needs us to do is to confess, repent, and then obey. Just live up to and live in the covenant that he has already established for us. There's a reason why we are over and over again called 
to remember Jesus, to remember what Jesus has done for us, the covenant that he established. And only once we remember and focus and live in that moment that we can be remembered into God in his family and with one another, that we can feel the unity that we're supposed to have is when we remember what Jesus has done for us. It's a covenant that we need to, to continuously rely on. Being a Christian isn't a journey that starts at the cross and then just keeps moving forward past it. It's a journey to the cross where we die to self and live by the power of Christ in us. And it's in the shadow of the cross daily that we pick up our own cross to follow him. We don't leave the cross behind. We bring it everywhere we go, relying on who Jesus is and what he has done for us every single day. And it's in that moment, in this heart, I'm going to invite you now to take your elements that you were given on the, on the way in. And if you didn't get one, maybe one of the, uh, the uh, guest service team can just stick up your hand if you didn't get one and, and somebody will come around to you. To give you instruction, like we said uh, last week when we were watching online with Pastor Jason, you can prepare your communion elements all together, rip open the top piece to access the bread and open the drink so that you have them both. For when I give you instruction, we'll be able to both take the bread and drink together in the one moment with our masks down really quickly and then return our masks to their proper position. But today, we want to appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus, which the bread and the cup symbolize. We want to hold on to these things and stare at what is just symbols to us today, a small wafer and some grape juice of what they stand for, what was done for us by Jesus, the holiness the set-apartness, the covenant that we can't keep on our own strength, but that Jesus has covered for us, the righteousness that we could never attain on our own, both individually or corporately, is covered by the act that Jesus did on the cross that these emblems symbolize. We want to remember them, hold them clear dear to our hearts as part of that come to the light people and church that we want to be. We want to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us where our hearts are inconsistent with the love of Jesus. We want to ask Jesus to forgive us as we walk in the power of his love for us and others. And whether you've ever prayed a prayer like this before, I know in our hearts we join together to say, Dear Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us. Forgive us of our sin and heal our hearts. Help us to be more like you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we take the emblems, we can use this opportunity as a moment just to say, God, we ask for your forgiveness. As a people group, as a church, we stand before you, God, and we ask for your forgiveness and we repent of where we have erred in loving like you, Jesus. And today, our focus is on repenting against how we treat others, other communities, God, we, other cultures, other ethnicities, God, where we as a church and as individuals have failed to love like you, Jesus. We stand today on behalf of our fathers and mothers in faith, on behalf of ourselves, we stand before you, God, and say we want to love like you, no matter the ethnicity or cultural background of anybody we meet. God, may your love for them be all that we have, and may it lead us and guide us in our actions, in our words. Scripture says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this, is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us partake. God, to proclaim your death until you return. It sounds contradictory to us because we know that you are alive. We know that you are the living God, that you sit at the right hand of the Father, Jesus. But in proclaiming your death, what we do is we understand that you died on behalf of all of us. And we proclaim that your death and the power that you had over sin and death is what we hold on to, is the power we desperately need to conquer the death and sin in our lives. And so, God, we proclaim your death. We celebrate your resurrection and the power that you have over sin and death. And we remember it today, both individually and collectively, corporately. We stand and, under, and, and, and agree that, God, we do not want to put things in the wrong order. We do not want to make covenants in our own strength and declarations in our own strength, but we want to rely on your covenant, Jesus. We want to rely on your righteousness, your holiness, your spirit alive in us to lead us and guide us in your presence, to create that humility, to create that hunger for your word and your, your, your people, God. May it lead us and guide us in all things. Today, as we close, 
we will again read through the declaration that uh, will that will uh, be our declaration for this year, and you'll see it uh, show up on the screens. I know the font will be a little bit small, um, but if you can, would you would you stand with me as we close and read through uh, our declaration uh, together as Life Center? I know it's really small, so if you uh, read along with me, that'll be great. I'll read it out for you. Jesus, help us to be more like you. Holy Spirit, empower us to be who you've gifted us to be. Father, teach us to abide in your love. Jesus, heal broken relationships, hearts, minds, and bodies. Teach us to rise early, pray fervently, and trust your word is ultimate truth. Give us hearts quick to surrender to you, strong to resist darkness, tender to others around us. Help us love, not judge. Build up, not break down. Let us love one another as you love us. Jesus, send revival and start in us. The harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. Lord, send us until earth looks like heaven. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, build your house. In Jesus' name we pray.